Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, and thank you for coming along today uh, to be with us. At least we're safe inside, you know, for the next storm that comes along. Now, it's a big thrill for me to be here this afternoon to have a chat with Alice because we've actually worked together before. Alice was the editor of a fantastic book called Growing Up Asian in Australia, uh, which was uh, an, which is an anthology of like a who's who of Asian Australians uh, collecting um, a whole batch of stories, which has been a really successful book. It was published in, let me see, 2008? Yes. And it's now in its fourth reprint. So it's so nice for me to be involved in a book that actually is successful, let me tell you. It's been... <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so I was very happy that one of my stories was published in that book. But um, Alice, of course, um, burst onto the literary scene in 2006 with her memoir, Unpolished Gem. It was a really fresh, vibrant new voice. And as a result of that, the Australian book industry awarded her the 2007 Australian Newcomer of the Year. The book was also shortlisted for several other awards, including the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, and the Age Book of the Year, and has been published in the UK and the US. Um, Alice went to China in 2008 to take up an Asia-Link residency at Beijing University, and some of her experiences there are in her latest book. The following year, she joined the Iowa International Writing Program. In 2011, she was the Australian representative in the US Department of State's Fall and Recovery Writers' Tour of Disaster and Conflict Sites of America. So we'll be having a little talk about that because I'm intrigued by that. And shortly after, she published her second memoir, Her Father's Daughter, about leaving home and about discovering her father's past, which is a dark and painful story about Cambodia during the Pol Pot years. And there is a link, of course, between that story and the exhibition that's on at the moment in the gallery. Alice has a deep passion and empathy for youth issues, and she believes in the power of humour to surmount adversity. So, Alice, it's four years between your two memoirs. I guess in that time, you matured a great deal as a writer. Um, well, and the, it's been four years since the two books were published, but I think it's been 10 years since I started the first book and finished the last one. So I'm um, not sure if I matured as a writer so much as my voice changed because your voice as a 19-year-old, which is when I started to write the first story in Unpolished Gem, um, is very different from your voice when you, you are 30 years old finishing your last book. And the reason it's different is... When you're in your late teens and your early 20s, a lot of firsts happen to you, you know. Many things happen for the first time. So you're writing with this immediacy of experience. Everything's fresh. And then when, when you're in your 30s, you know, a lot less first things happen, of course. Um, still a significant amount compared to being 40 or 50 or 60. Um, and you lose the... Uh, you know, wise cracking voice that you needed to have in your first book. Yeah. <laughs> it was a wise cracking voice, actually. <laughs> but you needed the humour in the second book because you do, um, you do include in it some really, really dark stories, which were the stories about the experiences that your parents had. 
Um, and it's interesting because the book begins as being about you getting to the stage where you're ready to leave home and to strike out on your own as an adult. And your parents, uh, f your father in particular, um, is incredibly protective of you. And this is a struggle that I really relate to because <laughs> my dad also was incredibly protective and wouldn't let me go. I remember having huge arguments when I wanted to move out of home. Um, so, but you talk about... You know, for me, I just resented that a lot, but you analysed it like a good writer should. You, you thought about why is he being so protective and I guess that led you on or encouraged you to look further into his past and what had happened to him to make him be so incredibly protective of his children. That's true. Um, so, you know, I, I always grew up knowing that my parents survived some terrible things in Cambodia. As a young child, I remember dinner time conversations would mainly, you know, they'd have off-the-cuff remarks like, well, remember Needle? She was really talented. Too bad they smashed her. And things like that that were completely normal. So we, we didn't grow up traumatised or anything. That was part of our childhood and upbringing <coughs> as... Um, children who have Holocaust surviving parents will attest. That's, that's normal conversation. Um, and then when I went to university, I studied um, politics and I studied Southeast Asian history, which was a terrible time to do those things. Because just when you start to resent your parents for <laughs> not letting you go out after 8.30, crazy curfews like that, you suddenly realise that they're not letting you go out because they're afraid. And they're afraid because of terrible things that happened. They survived a genocide where um, the ethnic Chinese were purged. And so arguments with my father were always very frustrating. I don't know if you had the same in that where he would say, you know, we're doing it for your best interest and you get very upset and sometimes you'd start to cry. And my dad would say, aha, that's why we don't let you go out, because look at you, you're a sook, you know. <laughs> you're crying. And you could never win them. Yeah. It was very frustrating. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, I, I would cry out of frustration. Yes, that's, that was <laughs> what was happening. Yes. Yeah. 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 But that was so incredibly protective. And, you know, you tell a story in the book which really which is really quite shocking, really, about what happens when a young boy in the warehouse... Uh, because, you know, like all good um, Chinese girls, you help out with the family business yeah. on the weekend. <laughs> and there's a, a, a young boy in the warehouse who sort of makes an advance at you. Uh-huh. And, and you eventually tell your father about it. And then what happened? Oh, you know, I wrote about it, but the, the real... Um, what really happened was was much more, which is much worse. So I'll start with, the, this is my father. He, um, he saw some terrible things in Cambodia. So he saw small children dragged away, especially young girls, and he knew what was happening to them. And I remember back even before that incident, when I was about 16 or 17, when I was about 10, I was playing Monopoly with my cousin Anderson, and we had the door closed because a lot of cousins were over little kids, and my father, this is my blood cousin, this is his sister's son, 
he knocked on the door. We thought he was going mad. He said, let me in, let me in. So we opened the door and he dragged me out and he said, what are you doing with him? We're going home. And so I was brought up to believe that if you're in, you know, a 50 meter radius to a member of the male species, <laughs> they were either perverts or pedophiles. And and this, I remember this very well when I was 10 uh, because I didn't understand it. I thought, what well, did I do wrong with Anderson? We're playing Monopoly. We just didn't want kids coming in. And so when I was 17, I was photocopying in the back office of my dad's shop. He had an electrical appliance store. And there was a young man who must have been 20 there. Now, at 17, a lot of my friends went to nightclubs and, you know, people would dance up against them and things like that. And they'd they'd learn to be feisty. They'd learn to stub their cigarettes out on the guy if they got too close. But this happened within this confined space of the photocopying room. And I thought about it, and I thought, oh, that, that's a bit dodged. This guy rubbed up against me. You know? And so I mentioned it to my dad. I said, hey, you know, one of your employees rubbed up against me. But it took me a while, about a week later, to mention it because I, I knew that he, he would um, make a big deal out of it. And I didn't want to make that big a deal of it. I just wanted to tell him so he, he'd know. And he actually... Um, he waited a, another week and then he went upstairs, took, took the young man upstairs and yelled at him and fired him and kicked him in the nuts. But I didn't write that. In the <laughs> and I'd never seen him like that. It's a very interesting thing, the, the Chinese Cambodian or the Khmer Cambodian personality, especially if they're Buddhist, you're very placid. And lots of sociologists and historians have said they were a very placid group of people, which is why the Khmer Rouge could overtake a whole country, 4,000 people in a collective and a handful of adults led by kids with AK-47s. You know, why didn't anyone revolt like the Jewish people did? So culturally, you're brought up to respect authority. So that there's this, you know, and my dad, he waited a whole week. He, he didn't go up to the guy straight away. So it was simmering until he exploded. And, and that's what it's like. Yeah. So you were saying to me, because we were having a chat before about yeah. um, Sophie's work uh-huh. and how um, some of it was inspired by his memories of being a child growing up during the Pol Pot years. Um, and he was Khmer Cambodian. Yeah. But you were telling me that as ethnically Chinese Cambodians, for your parents, things were a little different. Oh, they, they were quite different because... When Pol Pot came into power, his idea was of the pure race, a lot like Adolf Hitler, and he wanted to create this utopian society called Year Zero. Now, this idea of the Khmer civilization is really interesting because Cambodia had been colonised by the French for such a long time that it, the identity was almost French. And then when these um, pernicious forces came, the Vietnamese were attacking, the the French usually don't do this. They don't usually tell a power that they've colonised, that they were great and mighty. And it was the French who discovered the Angkor Wat. And then the French said to the Cambodians, this is your mighty empire. You used to own this huge tract of Thailand, used to own part of Vietnam, used to own part of Laos. You know, you, you are noble warriors. And this is how Khmer identity came about. It had been... There, there wasn't this Khmer patriotism. There wasn't the ankle what on the flag until the French discovered it. 
And when that came about, because Pol Pot was educated in France, he thought Cambodia has to be purified of its evil influences. The Vietnamese, you've got the Chinese who were considered the Jews of Southeast Asia because they're always in the cities and they're always starting businesses. Always the shopkeepers. Yes, and the Cham Muslims, they all had to be purged. And the first to go were the Vietnamese. My father saw a lot of his Vietnamese friends. Um, A lot of them were just farmers. A lot of them worked um, selling vegetables in the city. And he he saw a mass exodus of them. And he said the saddest thing were the girls because their hair was all messed up. So they'd been messed with. And then it was a street sign. So this is so interesting. I didn't know about this until he had a panic attack when he saw the news and he said, John Howard's changing the street signs. Australia's really racist. And I said, he's just made a proposal to change street signs. So they'll all be in English. It doesn't mean it will go ahead. And I realised that the very first part of ethnic cleansing in Cambodia was the signs were changed to be in complete Khmer. You couldn't have Chinese or Vietnamese or Thai or, or any other language. So that, that really worried him. And um, this idea of the pure Khmer identity meant you identified people. So people who look like Annette and myself, we don't look Khmer, we'd be the first to be uh, called into suspicion. Mm, mm. The irony were the Chinese were considered the capitalists but the Khmer accepted a lot of help from China, which was communist. Mm. They sent their tanks in and gave them machine guns and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Very strange politics or it strange was. ideology. Yeah. yeah. So why, why do you, did you decide at this point uh-huh. to write about um, your parents' background? Oh, well, you know, I, that was the original book I'd set out to write when I was um, about 18, Because after I finished high school, my dad realised that I liked writing. I did it quite a lot and I asked him about his um, history for for one of my year 12 assignments and it was extraordinary and I asked him to tell me more and he said, well, I've I've probably told you all I can tell you um, but I've got lots of friends around. They'd be happy to talk to you. So he took me around to his friends now in their 40s, 50s or 60s and they would tell me what happened. For example, one friend um, whose story is in the book, I think she got driven up. So she, she was a refugee and she got, who made it to Thailand, but she got driven back, but they dumped her on top of a hill and the soldiers were standing at the top of this, well, it was more a mountain with machine guns and so you walk down the hill and then you'd start to explode because the hill was dotted with landmines mm. And she said she was one of the last to walk down. Uh, the soldiers didn't shoot her because she said she was going down. And she was one of the last because she tried to save herself. She waited till the explosions had happened. And she said it was a very selfish thing to walk down after everyone had cleared the path for her. But she gave birth at the bottom of the hill, which oh. is why she waited at the top. Oh. And I was, can you imagine, you're 18 years old, you're writing down these stories um, Luckily, I didn't have much wisdom as an 18-year-old, but I had the, um, you know, the, the self-knowledge to realise I can't tell these stories at 18. I don't have much life experience. I've never been to Cambodia. These people are in their 60s or you know, <laughs> late 50s. So I just collected the stories and, and let them sit for a while while I studied Southeast Asian politics and history and um, wrote my first book set in Australia. And then when I was about 27, I went back to them. So, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. 
So what had happened when you were 27? What, what made you think that now you're ready or now that you could do justice to those stories? Oh, well, the thing that made me feel not ready or that I could do justice, it, it, was, it happened coincidentally. I was living in Beijing on an AsiaLink residency. So the, the Australian government through AsiaLink were, were really great. They sent me to China for three months to learn about my background, my grandmother's history. And the irony was because I'm third generation, you know, I was born in Australia, my parents were born in Cambodia, only my grandparents were born in China and they'd passed away. When I went back to my grandmother's hometown, there was no link, there was no family and the world that she'd grown up in was different. There's a writer called L.P. Hartley who wrote The Go-Between. He said the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. And that's exactly how I felt. So where the village was was a McDonald's store and a hotel. So I couldn't find any trace of my heritage. And I went to Beige, back to Beijing where my flat was. It was snowing and cold. And my father, without fail, every evening at 9.30 would call me up to make sure I wasn't going to discos. <laughs> and so, so I'd talk to him. And what was so interesting was the, the Black Saturday bushfires were going on in Australia. Terrible bushfires that killed a lot of Victorians and he'd be very alarmed and he would tell me every time without fail he'd say I thought this government was so good but they're letting people stay and defend their houses how could they let people stay and defend and I thought my dad you know he's grown old and conservative in his old age he reads Andrew Bolt now he won't let people (laughs) defend their houses (laughs) and I said dad you know these people are 65 these are their They've built their lives around these houses. They have the right to defend their houses. And my dad's always been very patient with me. It was when I hung up, I realised I had no idea what I was talking about. And he did because he stayed to defend his house in Cambodia from the Khmer Rouge. And he had he stayed for three days and three nights with his family and they boarded up the windows and the doors so the soldiers didn't discover them. On the third day, because everyone had been pushed out of the city, the soldiers said, anyone left, we're going to just shoot. And, we, and so they came out with their hands up and because they were such a small group, they couldn't escape to Vietnam like my mother's family could, so they were marched straight to the killing fields. So that's what happened when they stayed to defend their house. And um, I got a bit homesick because I had never been away from home for so long. And there was my dad, you know, with his usual mannerisms that I found so annoying as an adolescent. But far away from him, I started to see him as a man in his own right, not just as my dad. And I imagined him locking up the house before bedtime and making sure the windows were closed, making sure all the knives were back in the drawers. And all the knives we have um, uh, are like spoons. He's filed them away so they're not sharp anymore. And I thought, this is a very interesting man. So the story started off not with tales of surviving Cambodia, started off with a character, and that was the character of my father. That's how I came to write her father's daughter. I couldn't be so presumptuous as to think, I'm going to tell genocide stories. And you'll find the stories set in Cambodia two-thirds of the way in through the book. Mm. So Mm. most of it's set in Australia until you get two-thirds of the way into the book, and that's deliberate. That's how post-traumatic stress hits someone, just suddenly like that. Um, And to put those stories at the start of the book might have made a best-selling book, but 
it would have put my father as a perpetual refugee, because that's how refugee narratives are told. You survive terrible things, and then you make it in Australia. Yeah. It is an interesting structure that you use, because it's, um, it's a fascinating story. You know, all the stuff that happens, the relationship between you and your father, mostly, in that first part of the book. But when it hits you, those harrowing stories hit you in one big chunk. Um, it's, it's really quite shocking. Um, when we've talked to other people about you know, harrowing past, people who've come through the Holocaust or, or whatever, uh-huh. sometimes they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's like, that's in the past, let's just go ahead. So was there a resistance to you collecting these stories? I mean, how hard was it? How hard was it? Well, my father um, has been a, a rare kind of survivor in that he always talked to us. If we asked him openly about it, um, he would tell us these stories. But, of course, they're always appropriate. So if we asked him when we were 14, he would tell us small snippets. If we asked him, you know, when I asked him at 27 from across countries over the phone. He couldn't see me, couldn't see his daughter. Mm. (laughs) He told me the story um, more comprehensively than ever before. Uh, And he'd always talk about this stuff. You know, sometimes he'd make it funny. So when, when my first boyfriend came to dinner at our house, I remember my father put a huge plate of fish in front of him and said, here, Damien, try this fish. So Damien did, and my dad goes, this is delicious fish. But there's a, you know, there's a tasty fish in Cambodia called prahok, which is, um, what do you call it, pickled for, for a month or so. And he said, I can never have prahok in Australia anymore. And Damien says, why not, Mr. Paul? You can't buy it here. And he said, no, because you know what, Damien... I'll tell you something, it smells exactly like decomposing bodies. And I thought, Dad, no, don't, don't tell your war stories. My father liked telling his war stories. And I said, Dad, don't tell your war stories. It's the first time you've met him. Oh, I was so embarrassed. And my dad said, Damien, do you want to hear a funny story? And Damien said, OK. And I said, Damien, it's not going to be funny. It's just my dad. It's not funny. It's a war story. And my dad said, you know, when we were skin and bones, me and my mate Kwok, he pretended he wasn't Vietnamese. My dad pretended he was Khmer because my dad is quite dark-skinned. They got the enviable job of burying all these dead bodies. It was terrible. You know? When the floods came, um, all these bodies would roll into the river and they'd get bloated up. So... His job was to drag these dead bodies onto the mat and give them a decent burial. Now, the, I say enviable without making a joke of it because it was the last time you could get to see your loved one and if you got to bury them. You know, so he buried people he knew, he loved, he worked with, and people you know he didn't know that well. So they'd hoist these bodies onto the, the, this mat and um, hoist it on their shoulders, a mat like a swinging hammock, and then they'd walk slowly uphill but they were weak and malnourished. My father said, oh, if I sucked in my stomach, you could feel my backbone. That's how skinny he was. And they kept collapsing. And every time they collapsed, the blanket would get more heavy. And the body would get more bloated. And his mate one day just sits in the middle of the water, which isn't that high. That, you know, it comes up to his waist. He goes, God, I can't do this anymore. You better not be this heavy when it's my turn to drag you out. And my father said, Clark, don't worry. You're going to be the one in the blanket. And make sure you die with your mouth closed because I don't want you puffing up like a puffer fish. And they had this ongoing joke. And my father turns to Damien and says, 
Damien, that's really funny, isn't it? And the poor boy, he's gone completely white. He's stopped eating. <laughs> he doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. And, um, and I said, Dad, stop it. He said, well, your war stories aren't funny. And my father ignored me, and he really liked Damien. And he said, Damien, you know, you've, you've listened really attentively to me. I can see a glimmer of understanding that I've never seen in my daughter's eyes before. You know, you, you understand that I was burying people. I, I knew people we loved. And if, if we had taken stock of our circumstances, we would have given up. But that humor gave us hope. And he hadn't told me this directly. I always thought it was in bad taste that my father made jokes like that, oh. you know. And then I realized when you see your father through an outsider's eyes, you realize he's an interesting guy. Yeah. He's a great storyteller. <laughs> he's a great storyteller. That's where you get it from. Oh, thanks, Annette. Maybe. But I came to this book not wanting to write about a theme or thinking, whoa, Holocaust stories, but through a character. I wanted to write about the character of my father. And was that easy? Because you write in his voice. Um, it was easy and it was hard. So I write in his voice, but I write in third person. So he's not I, because I knew if I wrote him in first person, I did this, I did that, I felt this or that, it would be, it'd be wrong. It wouldn't come across as having much of a heartbeat because I'm not a 63-year-old man. You know, I was writing this in my late 20s, early 30s. So I had to put him in third person. And doing that was a great technique because when you're surviving the killing fields, you're not going to notice that the sunset looks like, you know, a five-day-old bruise. You're too busy surviving. But if you're in third person, you can add these details in. That's, that's how you make literature. And then because he's in third person, I had to put myself in third person. Otherwise, if I made myself I and made him him, it would just be another memoir, be a book about me telling a story about my dad. Whereas what I wanted was a conversation between a father and a daughter. But it's an unspoken conversation because it's not a series of letters to each other. In fact, most of the conversation is unspoken. So my father never directly tells me, you know, I don't want you mugged in China. He just calls me at 9.30 to make sure I'm not out. Mm. And things like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. How long did that boyfriend last, by the way? Oh, the, the sweet boyfriend, Damien. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe about a year, but I, I was oh. young then. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing well after he didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> Around the time you're finishing the writing of this book, though, you were, I, I'm really intrigued by this um, writer's tour that you went on in the States, The Fall and Recovery writer's tour. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Annette, that's, that was a really great time. You know, it happened at a really good moment because I was trying to finish her father's daughter, almost there, maybe 70-80% along. And then I got invited by the US Department of State to go to, um, to visit, oh, it was, it was mad, it was almost, I think it was eight different states in in 14 days and each one of those states was a site of disaster conflict or trauma so went to Gettysburg we went to Birmingham in Alabama where the civil rights movement happened we went to the Atchafalaya Basin where there was a big oil spill and where else Um, we went to where's that place where the wire was filmed not Detroit (laughs) Uh, Baltimore? Uh, Baltimore, yes. And we did meet David Simon, who directed The Wire. And then we would come back and write about it from our respective countries. People uh, 
you know, pe- people say the United States is, is so unjust, but the fact that they let 10 writers from all over the world, from Guatemala and, you know, uh, Kenya and places like that, see their most ugly sites, the sites of racism, disaster, oil spills, in ecological disasters, um, you know, civil war, and let us write about it in our respective home countries was, was truly a mark of freedom, I think. Yeah. So... And did that have... What effect did that tour have on you as a writer? What effect did that... Well, you know... It, It had many different effects, depending on which state we were in. One memorable thing was we went to New Orleans where the hurricane struck. And about four years ago, I'd been to New Orleans. You know, that was quite fresh. And we did what they call the hurricane tour, which sounds terrible. A person driving a bus, taking you around to the hurricane sites. But when we did the hurricane tour, the people driving the buses were people who lost their houses in the hurricane. And they were great storytellers. So this gentleman who was maybe, I think he said he was 57, he was driving a bus and he lost his house and he would tell us where the water level went up to. He'd show us his old neighbourhood through the bus and he would tell us that when the waters rose, um, all this electricity was in the water because of people's electrical appliances and people who tried to swim out to get help were electrocuted. That was a detail we never knew and he'd show us the signs on the, the doors and windows of a circle and a you know cross inside. And on each corner of this circle would be a special sign, number 20X. And he'd tell us how to read these circles on the houses that still existed. So if it had number two, it meant two people were dead in that corner. And if it had one... It, so you saw these sites of great tragedy, but you saw it through the eyes of someone who was um, making a living through this so so it was a great thing then four years later it'd become a tour where you know this lady was reading a script while she was driving a bus Mm. so the more immediate you are to a disaster um the the more authentic the story is if it's told second or third hand it, it seems strange and the other strange thing was going to Baltimore where The Wire was filmed, a lot of the writers were really, really excited. And I grew up in Footscray and Braybrook, which is very working class. And in the 80s, it it was kind of like Baltimore. You know, drug dealers were everywhere. And I hated Baltimore, whereas everyone else was so excited. They said, oh, The Wire's filmed here. But this is the most depressing place Mm. I've ever seen. There's no life. It is not a literary scene. (laughs) Yeah. So we take into these sites of disaster and conflict our own backgrounds as well, I think. Mm. It's interesting thinking about those sorts of stories because we hear a lot of harrowing stories these days, particularly coming out of the detention centres and the stories of asylum seekers. And they're probably, between those and the stories of people in Aboriginal communities, the most harrowing Uh sort of stories that we hear about all the time now. And um, there's a real healing quality to those stories being told. Um, but, but I'm wondering as a writer how you tell someone else's story when it is so painful and dark. You know, how do you do it? What, you know, what do you have to be aware of? How, how is it done? Oh, well, that's a great question, Annette, because my first priority isn't as a writer. It's, it's as a, um, 
a friend or a family member or a daughter or a sister. So if it's going to hurt someone I love, like my father or my grandmother or my you know, mother or my sister, I, I don't tend to put it in a story. Um, even though editors will, will tell you, oh, you can't take out this interesting part. <laughs> you, you have to take it out because... You know, people think stories are everything, especially published stories, they're in a book and, and they think that it represents truth. But, you know, you, if I wrote my first book now, it would be a completely different book. That book wouldn't exist. The thoughts I had this morning are completely different from the thoughts I have right now at this moment in this room. So stories you tell are just thoughts. It's only when the thoughts have significance to someone else. And I prioritise people I love you know if my thoughts have significance to them or my words then that's great and I don't want to adversely affect them so that that's how I go about it and the second thing is that I don't write um, if I'm if I have a vendetta so you you don't write to get back at someone especially if you're writing non-fiction and I don't mean a personal vendetta against someone who gave you ill will in primary school or high school. I mean, politically, if you dislike the policy of a certain moment, um, for example, how we're not very compassionate towards asylum seekers, you don't take your writing as an overt political tool. There's, there's a line that I... A conversation I had with my dad and her father's daughter where I've given him the book and, and he's reading it and he says, oh, it's good, but do you think there's too much suffering in it? And I thought, what do you mean, Dad? This is your, you know, this is your story. You told it to me. You didn't exaggerate anything. If anything, he toned things down. And he said, you know, white people don't want to read about suffering, so put some more jokes in or something. <laughs> and that was when I realised the book had to be structured a certain way. Um, it wasn't going to be a migrant memoir because that book wouldn't reach a because the people who are sympathetic towards asylum seekers would probably pick up my book and say, look at this, this is about a refugee who made it, who put his kids through university and is a decent and respectable person. And the people who don't like refugees will think, oh, God, another refugee story. So what I really wanted to do was write a story based on a character, my father, who is in all respects an Australian man. He, he believes more fervently than, you know, your um, Southern Cross tattooed, guy in the virtues of Australian, you know, freedom of speech, democracy, the integrity of the news. And that's so important, Annette, because when you've survived um, a country that's a bit shonky, that doesn't have rule of law, that's corrupt, you come to a place like Australia, you don't believe that the government lies. Oh, I thought you were talking about Australia, sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Cambodia. You come to Australia and, and you don't believe the government would lie, you don't believe the news media would lie. And if English is your third language, second language or fourth language, you will tend to read the Herald Sun or the, um, what's the Sydney, the Telegraph, mm. that, that little one. And that's what my father and all his um, friends do at the back of the retrovision store in the lunchroom. Mm. So Joe from Italy, Jim from Malta, you know, all his friends will sit there passing Andrew Bolt articles around. Because Andrew Bolt, his sentences are one paragraph each. So if English is your second or third language, and you can read a whole article that has clear and concise arguments, and you've come from places where your biggest fear is terrorism and trauma and people changing the street signs, 
when the news reports that terrorists are coming in on boats, you tend to believe that Mm. and you tend to feel that it threatens your freedom. That's why the last elections, politicians were campaigning in migrant suburbs of Sydney because they knew these suburbs is where you could really hype up the fear Mm. of asylum seekers. Mm. It's it's ironic. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah. You presume they'd be the most sympathetic people, but they're the most fearful. Yeah. Yeah. And fear is a big thing through through the whole story too, isn't it? That, because fear is paralysing. It's the thing that um, not only stops you know, if the if the parents are awfully protective, it not only stops the children getting on with their life, but it stops the parents themselves perhaps from doing what otherwise they would do, taking the risks they might otherwise take if, that, if it were not for that fear. Yeah. How, has the relationship since the books come out? Yeah. How's the relationship between you and your dad? Has it been affected at all by the book? Um, We we became closer, you know, because we're always very close. But my dad, it was so incredible. He, at my book launch, because my dad's always been very stoic. He's always told jokes about Cambodia, you know, to anyone who will listen. And a week before my book launch, I said, Dad, do you want to say a few words. He goes, no, I don't know anything about writing. What do I have to say? And I said, but you, you talk, you tell great jokes, you know. <laughs> and he said, nah, no, I don't want to say anything. So I left it at that. And then two days before the launch, he says, yeah, I might say a few words. And at that point, I didn't realize what he thought of the book because he never told me what he thought of it. He didn't say, oh, that, that's such a great book or that's terrible. You misrepresented me. He said nothing. And then at the launch, he got up and he was as funny as usual. In fact, he was the star of the launch. He only spoke for 10 minutes. And then he, he got serious. I'd never seen him get serious about this before. And he said, you know, no one, none of my family understood me when my, my daughter, Alina, who's the youngest, went to Taekwondo and she was doing her finals and she was breaking wood with her bare hands. We were all clapping. And my dad wasn't clapping. And my dad is quite... a old-fashioned father. So I thought, oh, he probably doesn't like Alina acting like a man, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> breaking bits of wood. And so I, I left it at that. But he said, when I heard my daughter smash a piece of wood, I was reminded of the child soldiers, you know, um, whacking people through the back of their heads with a sickle. And um, when my sister Alison had a blood nose, he called an ambulance. <laughs> he overreacted. And I wasn't aware that he noticed these things about himself. And then the final thing he said was that he was in the lucky country and Australia, um, its people, especially Australians who who first came, you know, really, it was always the Australians that helped him and his children taught him forgiveness. Mm. And I had no idea he thought about things like that. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's change the subject because we've, we've only got, we don't have a little bit of time left and, and I would like to open it up to questions but I want to ask you about what you're writing now, about your next book. Oh sure, Annette, so <laughs> completely different. So yeah. I'm writing a fictional book um, set in a girls high school because I visit so many schools every year. I visit close to 80 schools around Australia. Most of them are girls schools. Um, they study my books so... Is that why you, you visit, because they study your books? Yeah, yeah, they, okay. they, and they'll ask me to talk about identity and belonging. I'm really interested in this interesting 
dynamic in girls' schools where girls are perfectly nice when they're by themselves, but when they're in a group, especially in a class, they're terrible. And, and one, <laughs> I'm sure there oh, are some teachers here. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you know, I could write about bullying, but I was never particularly bullied that much myself. But I do remember I went to five secondary schools. Every single one of those schools, whether it was a very poor state school in Footscray or a wealthy private school, um, kids bullied teachers. Girls in huge groups can really wreak havoc on a poor teacher. And so that, that was what I started to write about. Yeah. Girls in high school. (laughs) So you've been watching that Chris Lilly show about Jermaine? Oh, yes, Jermaine. (laughs) What do you think about that? Oh, I'll tell you a funny story. It's set in a girls' high school. The first... Now it's set in a... I mean, the location is a different school from where Jermaine first started off. But when her character first came, it was set in a very famous girls' high school in Melbourne. I won't tell you which one. And... Um, I live with the vice principal of that high school. We, we live in a college together, so she's also pastoral care advisor at Janet Clark Hall, like the women's college in Sydney. And she said, oh, man, those girls are so proud that Jamae comes from their school. They're so proud without sarcasm or without, you know, <laughs> they're just bluntly proud. <laughs> so I guess Jamae hits a, a, a terrible and funny truth about... <laughs> Certain school environments. Yeah. yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> oh, I'm too scared to go into a high school. <laughs> so I thought we might um, open, open up for questions. We've got a microphone here. Because we're recording this, aren't we, Sammy? So we'd like to hear your question as well. If you have any questions for Alice, given that she's got so many great stories and jokes. Um, Daphne. Um, hi, Alice. Is hi, this on? Daphne. Yeah, it's on. Okay, I'm Daphne, and um, I'm really pleased, right, to see someone young like you, right, becoming very well known, right, in terms of um, becoming a writer. And I certainly hope that we'll see more people of um, Asian descent, right, in the Australian population, right, doing what yeah. you're doing. Um, can I ask you a question about? Obviously, to write, it takes quite a lot of dedication. How do you go about your writing? Do you set time aside each day, or do you just write when you're inspired? Right? How do you go about it? <laughs> Daphne, that's a wonderful question. One of my favourite writers when I was a young adult was a man named Robert Cormier from Canada, and he said that if he only wrote when he was inspired, he'd write two times a year, and that's it. And that's how I feel about writing. I'm not inspired very often. A lot of the time, you're plodding along, and um, you might write 10,000 words and use you know, 2,000 of those words. So writing isn't my full-time career. I work as a research analyst at the Fair Work Commission, so I, I'm trained as a lawyer, and so what I do is research minimum wages for people. I do that three days a week, and um, I do that because even though with enough school visits, I could support myself, you know, writing and visiting schools and, and teaching, you need something to take yourself out of yourself. Writing is very introspective, and a lot of the time it's very... Um, you feel very selfish 
And this relates to being Asian-Australian too and having migrant parents. I couldn't write at home. When I was starting my book at home, if I was writing, my mother would be vacuuming. She'd be, you know, being in the garage, working as an outworker. She'd always be working. You never felt like your work, your writing was work. (laughs) You felt self-indulgent. So I finished the book after I'd moved into a teaching position at the college. So having the part-time work is great because I don't have that much time to write. So when I do, I never get writer's block. I think, why waste my time getting writer's block when I've only got three hours? (laughs) I'd better write down as much as I can. Yeah. Any other questions? What sort of writer are you? I mean, some writers will sit there and churn out pages and, and out it comes, and other writers will just sit there and just sort of sweat it out to put out two sentences in a day. <laughs> so, so what sort of writer are you? Oh, I, I don't know, Annette. I, I work... Um, so, for example, it depends what I'm writing. If I'm writing a novel... Sometimes I do take a long time to write a couple of sentences to get them right. If I'm writing, say, a piece of journalism for the monthly magazine, um, for example, I won't write very much except notes that the thing I'm working on now has taken me almost a year. It's it's these three sisters who are 9, 16 and 17 that I followed for about almost a year now because their parents, both parents are in prison in Vietnam and these three sisters are kind of orphans by themselves in Australia Mm. and you know there's a story there and I know if I sat down and wrote each encounter with them it would come across prematurely and and I'd pick out the wrong thing so you've got to let things settle before the story emerges Mm. and it might take me another six months or another nine months before there's a I find a conclusion. It could conclude at any time because these sisters are always going to be around. Mm. Their parents have got life sentences in Vietnam. Because, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> fascinating. Uh, Miss Pung, good afternoon. First of all, thank you very much for your time. It's been delightful to listen to you. I just wondered, you've had um, touches with many cultures and obviously quite a few religions, from the French. Catholic influence in Buddhism and communism and now tattooed football-loving Australia. <laughs> Where do you stand religiously, mentally, out of all of this summary of your life experience? Oh, I, I'm Buddhist. Yeah. <laughs> and happily and continuously so. Yes, um, but I have to qualify. I do eat meat. I've never... My, my parents um, have always... Oh, they've, they've almost forced us to eat meat. You know, if we don't eat meat, they say people are scrabbling for food scraps in Cambodia. So, so they're Buddhists that eat meat. And my grandmother was a very devout Buddhist, but even she ate meat. She had days when she didn't eat meat three days a week, but the other times she was the oldest survivor of the Kahur Collective in the Killing Fields. So 4,000 people and only one old person survived. That was my grandmother. She came to Australia at 72 years old, and this country gave her another lease of life because she lived another 20 years. And I have at least, you know, seven cousins who died before they were 15 or 20. So she had another lifetime here, and she always ate meat. She, she said, you don't know when your last meal will be. Yeah. Are there more questions? Yep. Yep. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name's Lynn. Um, I was just very interested to hear a little bit about your mother 
because you wrote about your father, of course, as your father's daughter, uh-huh. and um, whether she was okay with your writing all about it, or um, whether she'd been obviously traumatised and what happened. Oh, well, my mother wasn't in Cambodia, so she... When um, Year Zero happened and everyone in the city were considered capitalists and they had to go into the countryside to work in labour camps, because there was this mass exodus, and my mother's family was really poor, so they just took the clothes on their back and a few pots and pans. They didn't have the burden of property ownership that my father's family had. They didn't need to stay and defend anything. They left their rented house. And because there was such a mass exodus of people being pushed into work collectives, when they reached the border near Vietnam, they just crossed a bridge and nicked off with all these other people and no one noticed they were missing. So my mother spent her her adolescent and her 20s in Vietnam. And she... This is an interesting thing. My father's nine years older and he's educated because he had more of an education. When my mum was in grade two... First, they changed the street signs so nothing could be in any language but Khmer. And then secondly, they closed down all the Chinese schools. So because my mother was significantly younger, she didn't get much of an education. And um, she can't read or write in, very well in Chinese and she can't read or write in English. So we have to tell her what we write about her. Yeah. I'm, I'm just interested as to um, if you have any understanding of why your father was so forthcoming with the stories. Uh, I ask this because I don't, I'm not. I'm a, my family's from Singapore, but we don't have we don't have a refugee background or anything. But uh-huh. my parents left Singapore because of a really unpleasant family situation. So when I ask my parents, my mother is very forthcoming with the stories, and she will tell me all about these things. And she has a lot of anger. Uh-huh. But my dad puts up this brick wall, and oh. I get nothing. And then I, I, talking to them, I realise it's because my dad's family was the cause of the problem, so my dad doesn't admit that they happened. Yeah. Um, but my mother was affected by it, so therefore she is very forthcoming. And then also there was another story with um, the Ding Kulay exhibition that we had. It was a Vietnamese refugee. Yeah. And a school group came in, and this little boy tapped me on the, tapped me on the leg, and he said, is there, was there a war in Vietnam? And I looked at him and said, yeah, and then he was an Asian boy. Uh-huh. And, I, and he said, oh, because my mum and dad are from Vietnam. And I went, oh, okay. And they don't talk about it. And he said, no, no, that my, my dad does the same thing. Oh. So it's like they were protecting him. But I'm, so I just found it interesting that your dad, who's been through such horrible things, is, was so willing to talk about it. I'm just wondering if you, if you may have understood, you know, why he was Oh, that, so that's a great question. Well, my grandmother, the, the 72-year-old who came here as a survivor, she was always a great storyteller. And my, she was always very... Um, very bent on education because she was the only female in her family to get educated in China. They didn't even educate their sons. Her parents were peasants, but they were so enlightened. They educated their daughter because they believed that their daughter would have a harder life if she was uneducated than their sons would, and she was the smartest. And with that education, she was meant to be a teacher, but she started writing these subversive articles about how the landlords were stealing the land from the peasants. So her life was in danger, which is why she went to Cambodia. So she's always told stories to her 10 kids. My father's one of 10 kids. And she lived with us when they came to Australia with my father. 
And my father and her would always talk, and they would always tell us stories as well, age-appropriate stories. And as we got older, we realized that my dad liked telling stories. So I guess, you know, so you'd ask him and he'd tell you. And I think part of that was a lot of young adults, even though your parents are daggy, I always knew my father had good stories, but a lot of the time, because in Australia there's this culture of um, you're, you're put in schools where you're always around people of your same age group, your same, your peers, you're not that interested in older people or people who are much younger. You know, there's this segregation. So in our family, you could ask, you were meant to ask your elders. Yeah, maybe it's a cultural thing. But then again, it isn't because I've got Vietnamese friends and Cambodian friends, like your family, who are completely cut off and completely closed. And the funny thing is, I noticed that the reticent fathers... Um, and this is no small coincidence, are the ones that drink a lot of VB, that drink a lot of beer, (laughs) that find it hard to control their anger because they're... Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of talk these days about post-traumatic stress and particularly about returned soldiers and all that sort of thing. But, you know, in all the stories of the refugees who live here, um, and especially those who came in the sort of 70s and 80s, so many of them suffer from that and never it's never really been diagnosed or really talked about except within the families and so many people that I've met and around your age group right, so the first generation children see this recognize this in their parents you know after they've grown up and it makes sense of the sort of weird idiosyncratic <laughs> upbringings that they've all had but it's a really widespread it's really common isn't it yeah and, um, and perhaps by talking about it more, that's how your, your dad's been able to deal with it, as you say. He doesn't yeah. need the VB. I think so. <laughs> one, of, one of the um, really sad things that came out of my first book, well, it was a wonderful thing, it was a, it was a happy thing, but one was I write a lot about my mother in my first book. Now, she can't read and write, and so, you know, write about her failed attempts at, at getting adult education. But I... An unexpected audience were these Italian and Greek women who had learnt to read later in life, and some of them would come up to me and and say, oh, it's the first time I've read about a migrant woman like myself. And then they'd say, when we came to Australia in the 50s, we weren't allowed to talk about what happened in the past. We're meant to assimilate. It was like 30 years of our life didn't happen, we were peasants, you know, Australians didn't like that kind of thing. And so it was like, you know, we've lived here all our lives, being transported to Japan forever and ever and not being able to talk about what it was like back in Australia for not assimilating. Mm. And that was when I learned that your history is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Assimilation and being new Australians. It's yes. terrible, terrible <laughs> era of our history. And I think we've run out of time. So thank you all for your passion. Should we please thank Alice for sharing thank you. And thank you for being a, a lovely audience. And Alice's books are for sale up on the balcony there if you'd like to pick up a copy. Oh, I'm sure they? it should be. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, and maybe oh, you need great. to get your signing um, in action there. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks, everyone. Thank you, you. you, Annette.